I say, so let's say you are competing at a high level when you are like 17 or 16 or something, you're going to be fast then because you're not going to have much body fat at all. Mm -hmm. Like, like you're going to be fast. And so then when your body catches up, when you start gaining weight, especially on the run, but like also on the bike, any sport where like maybe other than swimming, any sport where gaining weight will slow you down as long as it's not functional weight, you're going to get slower. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a former Canadian ITU pro triathlete, uh, racing a lot of the fun races I wish I had gotten fast enough to be able to do. <laughs> she is a certified exercise physiologist, currently working in our human performance lab in, uh, as a PhD candidate in exercise physiology. She's also an online triathlon coach. So... If you have needs in that area, you can get in touch with her. Welcome to the show, Alex Coates. Thank you very much for having me. This is fun. Yeah. Thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for joining me in the lab. It's always nice to have like different backgrounds. I've always got my ridiculously messy, uh, you know, bookshelves in my door. That if anybody's been watching the podcast for a while knows that I stripped that door of paint. I don't know how many months ago, <laughs> six eight months ago, and I still haven't stained it. So. I'm going to get there one of these days, um, but you've got all kinds of like fancy instruments and stuff. That's mm-hmm. and I'm like, mostly just like doctor curtains kind of thing, but <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be a biomechanics lab that I'm in. So yeah. Is it, I mean, how is it like, is it going to work uh, or school, however you classify it in your brain, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, is it, is it like going to the playground every day where you've got all these toys and you're going to bring people in? You're like, okay, we're like, get all my machines and, and show it's me some stuff. It's pretty fun. It's pretty fun, honestly. Like, we have our met cart. We have two bikes over there. Um, just before this podcast, we were doing this protocol where we have blood flow restriction cuffs and I'm on a tilt bed and I'm, I was echoing. So I was doing echocardiography on myself while having my legs completely blood flow occluded and like it was like super painful and yeah it's fun it's just like crazy but good so are you, are you putting yourselves like through all the protocols before you bring in i'll call patients or subjects or mm-hmm. you know, anybody for for research are you like mm-hmm. let's put me through this and see what happens yeah so we have like one rule in our lab which is we try to follow it which is like if you're going to do something to someone from outside you should probably do it on yourself first to make mm-hmm. sure that it's not crazy um i mean everything we do is quite painful but like you know, you have to have that perspective. And then like with COVID right now, we have to test mostly just within the department. So we're just testing. Our lab has seven people. We've been testing ourselves, you know, for all our different studies just over and over. And yeah, so lots of pain. <laughs> so is that basically your training regimen now where you're just like, yeah, I just do studies. I, I, I don't need to, I don't need to keep track of like, okay, this day we know we need a rest day. It's just like, okay, what study are we doing today? Yeah. What kind of protocol do I have to put myself through? 
Yeah, exactly. I hate the studies though, where there's no exercise. So we have one study going on where you just do the um, oral glucose tolerance test. So you drink like a hundred grams of sugar, it's gross. And then you just sit there for two hours or we do it with muscle stim or you do it with blood flow restriction, but either way, you're just lying still for two hours while mm-hmm. your blood glucose goes crazy. Um, so I hate that, but I like the exercise days because, you know, yeah, you get a workout in and you get some data. So, yeah. So now I have to ask about the drinking the sugar. Yeah, is that awful. is that just you're just taking like table sugar and putting 100 grams in like 16 ounces of water? You got to chug or like what? It's basically what's the that. So it is like a standardized drink, and they make it orange flavored so that it's more easy to drink. Um, but yeah, you could do that. You could easily just put 100 grams of table sugar in water. Um, but yeah, we have like these prepackaged drinks, and you just drink it as fast as you can, and then watch your blood glucose go through the roof. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. I just, it, 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 why is maybe maybe a good question. Cause you know, I'm just thinking about like, you know, and you know, like as you're prepping to race, like you're just, you're not gonna take in a hundred grams of sugar in an hour. No. Alone just being like, hey, let's, let's, let's chug this. a minute. Right, let's see what happens. Yeah. It, it just sounds like you're, I feel like, it would definitely make me pass out after <laughs> after you're like insulin goes crazy and then you crash and I'm just like now I need a nap. Yeah. So do you, is yeah. it just does it basically tear you up even though mm-hmm. you're laying there doing nothing? Yep. Basically, so that that specific study, um, the master student who's running it, he's looking at how. So we know that when you do that, it impairs your your artery function. Mm-hmm for a bit and so he's basically looking to see if when you do if you drink it and you have the muscle stim or if you drink it and you have blood flow restriction or you drink it and you have blood flow restriction and muscle stim you know which one kind of prevents that impairment the most um it's looking from preliminary data like the muscle stim is the best so basically exercise is good at preventing the bad things that happen when you drink too much sugar in a minute but yeah either way like for us doing it it's terrible because they do that test to see how like whether or not you're diabetic um so how well your blood your body responds to that you know crazy amount of glucose yeah but we're basically like doing it so often that we're like giving ourselves diabetes <laughs> instead of using it to check our diabetes it's terrible yeah yeah so are you doing like with the muscles i know we're getting down a rabbit hole already but maybe yeah. that's fine so like with the with the muscle stimulation, are you, are you like on a treadmill? Or are you using like a, a stim machine? Like, you know, what's yeah. the protocol for that? This one's just a machine. Yeah. And so, or actually we kind of do our own, make our own pads, but like, it would just be the same as um, maybe a physio kind of okay. muscle stim machine. And it's just, you're lying on your back and we put it on the quads and we actually go pretty hard. So it's like kind of the most stim that you can handle before it gets painful. Okay. Um, but you do that for half an hour and that seems to help to reduce the blood glucose and like help with the vascular impairment um, more than, so yeah, the other condition is you have these blood pressure cuffs, you put them around your legs and occlude blood flow for, I think it's five minutes on, five minutes off um, while the stim is going on at the same time. Mm. And it's interesting because, I mean, we haven't quite seen all the vascular data from that, but I think... I do think that the muscle stim by itself is actually going to be better than 
the blood flow restriction as well. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of research going on right now in the blood flow restriction space for for injuries or for you know performance enhancement and stuff. Um, and yeah, our lab does a lot of that. I'm like myself, I don't really do a lot of that research myself, but um, most people in our lab are investigating uses of it, so. Yeah. Okay, and obviously this is preliminary, but now I have a bunch of questions and yeah. <laughs> you have to excuse me because I know just enough to be dangerous, none of that can actually be useful. So uh, with, with the STEM machine, so, um, and, clarify this if I get this wrong for, for the listener here, the stim machine, you're putting pads on, there's electrical stimulus, it forces your muscles to contract. Yep. Um, you know, sometimes uh, physios use it for rehab, which mm -hmm. is where I've encountered it during college. Um, when, when the machine is forcing your muscles to, to contract, are you, are, is your muscle still using fuel like it would if you were using your brain to make the muscles contract? Yep, yep, okay. it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's like kind of, I guess, the main idea behind it for this is yeah. that you're basically kind of, your muscles do have to use um, some extra glucose. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's like different, right? Yeah, because it's not voluntary, but it still does burn through the glucose as right. the muscles are contracting. And so, um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of the idea behind it. That's why I just, I, as I was thinking about it, and you were saying that the inclination is that probably that would be the thing that doesn't, you know, make uh, the blood glucose level spike as high, I mm -hmm. think is what you had said. Mm -hmm. So my, my inclination was like, okay, well, is that because your body's basically signaling the sugar to be moved to store or use a glycogen? And, that, and yep. that, so that's why I was like, I think that only makes sense if the stimulation is actually using fuel. And I was yeah. like, I simply don't know whether it does or not. No, it does. Yeah. And then, so then I'm doing, so I don't know if you've heard of um, super sapiens. They're the new mm. like continuous glucose monitors. They just got banned actually from UCI cycling, Okay. like too much data. Okay. Um, but people, a lot of famous athletes are being sponsored by them. And basically it's giving you minute by minute blood glucose readings. Mm. So we're going to be doing some studies with um, those just to see how we can use it to enhance performance, I guess, or kind of help you with training and everything. And so with what I'm going to do is basically similar to what we just talked about, but then also add a full body exercise um, after you drink the 100 grams of sugar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in theory, and this, you know, should definitely be the case is like full body exercise is going to be much better than just muscle stim but you know it's kind of like a graded response you've got like right. you've got nothing which is the worst and then you've got this blood flow restriction which probably is better than nothing and then muscle stim which is better than both and then full body exercise it's going to definitely be the best but yeah well and then like from there as because as we were talking about before i get going i'm working on a, a new sports string so i'm like interested mm -hmm. in body's response to sugar and when you need sugar and all that kind of stuff so mm -hmm. and then looking at like competing products and all this so then as i'm thinking about this um something else that I'm curious and whether you know about without the study is like, so you can only, uh, your body can only absorb, you know, so much of one source of sugar. It's like yes. 60 grams or something an hour. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. So I would, I think it would be also interesting to say if you, you know, those hundred gram vials or samples or whatever are standardized, mm -hmm. but if you could mix them and say like, we're going to do like a 50, 50, glucose mm -hmm. fructose and then how, how does your body respond to that and then like i'm especially interested in 
you may have seen this, there's a number of companies coming out with products that are using this uh, sugar called cluster dextrin, which is supposedly, you know, you can take in a much larger mm-hmm. gram quantity per hour while exercising. Is that the Martin stuff? I'm not that, sure. Okay. I'm not sure. I know, um, like, I know Scratch Labs knew, like, Super Fuel, or it's the black mm-hmm. bag. I, don't, I, know, I know they are using it. And somebody else, I just can't remember. But I, I haven't looked into it that much. And I, I, partly I'm like, where did this stuff come from? How do we figure it out? And then wh- yeah. why does it, you know, why is it you can supposedly actually take in more mm-hmm. carbs per hour with it? So, yeah, the original Martin, um, they claimed that you could take more in than, mm-hmm. you know, normal glucose, fructose kind of mixtures. And then they found, they did a big study and found that you couldn't. It was the same amount as if you just did um, like a normal glucose, fructose kind of mixture. Okay. But there's newer versions. And I know the Twitter France guys are using it. And mm-hmm. they once again claim that you can absorb a lot more. And it's just because it's different like receptors, different absorption kind of receptors. So right. you can kind of mi- find the perfect mixture so that you absorb the most possible from each source. Then, yeah, you can take in the most, you know, sugar essentially. And um, so whether or not it's true, like whether or not you can absorb more than like a traditional glucose fructose mixture, I don't know if that is fully known, but they do still claim that you can. So, right. yeah, we'll see. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's the trouble with supplements. Is you, well, at least in the U.S. I don't know what the regulations are in Canada, but like you can, you can claim all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, without necessarily having evidence to back it up, which is, which is where people go, oh, the supplement industry is not regulated, which isn't true because it is. There are lots of regulations in mm-hmm. terms of like production and stuff and, and quality control, but it's the claims part that isn't so mm-hmm. regulated and where the confusion comes in, but it, you're, I mean, you're at the, I'll call it the forefront, but like you're, you're in the setting, you're part of the group of people that gets to say, okay, this is bullshit or this is real. Like yeah, <laughs> you can actually yeah. figure out what's going on. Yeah. So yeah. I and I don't to- know for certain if like, so yeah, I know that there was a study that came out. So the stuff that like um, two hour marathon guys, those guys, what they were taking, I think, following that, like around that time, they found that um, the Martin, whatever concentration wasn't actually better than normal. But I do think from that they've revamped it. So yeah, I haven't seen the more recent research if there is any, but yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll continue down the rabbit hole here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so like, say, you know, so like, like with the hundred gram uh, thing you're taking and say, mm-hmm. I decide well, I heard Alex talk about this thing and I, and I think it's going to be my way to super fuel for my upcoming race. So I'm going to take one in every hour. Yeah. And then we know, we know that's, that's going to be a good idea. So, so mm-hmm. what happens beyond that, like 60 gram limit or whatever, and that, that extra 40 grams, what, what's happening to that? Is your body just going to shoot it out? Is it, you know, like going to give you diarrhea or are you going to yeah. throw it up? Like what's it's basically happen? GI distress as far, as far as I know, it's basically like you, since you're not able to absorb it mm-hmm. then, and also a lot of the time your body has to kind of try to dilute it. <laughs> so you're pulling water into the stomach to try to dilute it right. and you're not able to absorb it. So you're not able to use it. So then you're going to have GI problems. Um, but you can train, like you can train your gut to handle more and more yeah, carbohydrate. Yeah. Um, so you can get like, you know, upper ranges over a 
slightly over 60 if you're really good at it. But yeah, other than that, um, let's say like, you know, you find your max is about 40 to 50. I wouldn't try and exceed that, like, especially in a race, you know, like it's like you can push it in training to your max, but then like in a race, just go with what works, you know, and if the most you could take in is 40 to 50, cool, just go with that, you know, rather than give yourself GI distress and then they'll add tons of time to your race yeah a stop or whatever so yeah yeah well and for you i mean for you so uh for you listening if you're more familiar with the like long course ironman format mm-hmm. um you may not know like with it racing what alex is you know doing for her racing career there's a much smaller margin for error like if you've got yeah. a flat you're probably unless you're just the biggest stud on the run probably not coming back yeah. to be on the podium unlike an iron man where you know like with you know, like when christy wellington had a flat and she had the change and still came back to win like it can happen in the longer formats but mm-hmm. when you're only racing for two hours give or take that anything goes wrong and like the day's over yeah exactly when you get a flat like basically you kind of resign yourself to your day being over you know maybe you finish the race but like if you lose the pack and that's the other thing with IT racing, it's pack riding. Right. So right. as soon as you lose a pack, you're, you're screwed, yeah. you know, then you're just, you're racing for definitely not top 10. So yeah. Um, yeah. Just trying not to get lapped and, and pulled out of the race at that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sad. Yeah. Which that's it, again, if you're not familiar with IT racing, they're lapped courses. So if the leaders on the bike pass you, you're still on the bike, then you're, pulled from the race for the day and your day's over mm-hmm. um which is which makes sense i mean the laps it's not like a mile long lap where yeah <laughs> you're yeah. gonna come up any quick but you know if somebody's injured or like i know uh, gosh I, I it's been it's been quite a while i think you were racing pro at the time but uh, i don't think i don't think you were with this race not that i would know mm-hmm. it was a high v in like 2010 it was the Definitely. like yeah it was mm-hmm. the like the year with the, the, I think 2010 was the year. I was there 2009 and 2010 because I, I, I get mixed up, which is which. Cool. There was. Simon Whitfield? Yeah, it was, it was the, the six-way sprint finish with yeah, yeah, Simon yeah. Whitfield at the one. Yeah, and, I think my uh, sister was there. I think my twin sister was racing that race. Yeah, the, so the, I, there was a, like, Iowan. I don't know what Iowa people call themselves. <laughs> Who had, who had, he'd been like winning the amateur race for a number of years and finally went pro. And I, I don't know how he got into this race. He was certainly fast enough to race like the Continental Cup and the lower like ITU races, but he just was not in shape to race with those guys and he got lapped out. Yeah. It was like, that was an instance where I saw it and I was like, I mean, that probably made sense because like he wasn't going to come back on the run. And, mm-hmm. and The tricky part for that is it just, it comes down to the swim. Right. Because it's like, yeah, sure, you probably are fit enough to hang in the bike pack. And then like the run, you know, it doesn't really matter how slow you go. You're not going to get lapped out. But it's the swim because if you can't swim and make a pack and a good pack, you know, if you're too far back on the swim, then you're just your day's definitely done because yeah. the packs, the front packs are going to go so fast that like you can't time trial. Everyone thinks that like, you know, coming from Iron Man or something, they can like time trial as fast as the pack. And it's like, no, no, you can't. The pack's working together. They're going so fast. I mean, if you just look at like Tour de France riders, they're riding like 45 to 50 kilometers an hour for like six hours, you know, like, and 
it's just because they're in a huge pack so yeah. yeah well it's like that i i only got a very little bit of experience in um like group riding and, and draft legal I mean, there was a couple like amateur draft legal races i was able to be invited to and just the the energy difference in just sitting behind one person let alone a group of yeah. people working together is ridiculous and you can look at the numbers and it'll say okay you're going to save 25% energy with optimal drafting. Mm -hmm. And you can understand that logically, but when you understand it in your legs, when you're doing mm -hmm. it, it's a whole other thing. And you go, Oh, like, yeah. that's, <laughs> yeah. like that's why there's, there's no way it, yeah. not to mention you're on a road bike with shorty arrow bars at best. Mm -hmm. Like you're just, not, you're not going to get into a great time trial position no. to, to, to get down there. So it just, mm -hmm. It's a nice thought in theory, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you exactly. know, it doesn't work in practice. No, exactly. Um, so I do want to ask about, so with your racing career, it, it seemed like you kind of came out of high school-ish age straight mm -hmm. into pros, right? Yep, that's right. So so how was that transition? I know like last week I talked to um, a pro cricketer from South Africa and he kind of did the same thing, just high school to you know playing professionally which is a little alien to any U.S. listener because we have this you know, collegiate development mm -hmm. system where everybody goes to college and plays college sports. Um, but that, that period of time, you know, from like 18 to 25-ish, is such a big like physiological development. Yeah. And, and I know um, from for other former pros I talked to uh, that just the, the jump up in difficulty from amateur races to pros even if you're ready is it's still an adjustment. So, so how, how did that transition go for you? Um, you know, do you recall how you felt at the time? Yeah, good question. Um, so yeah, it's very different when you kind of are just fed into the pro kind of system. So I went like kids of steel into junior elite into U23 elite into lead elite. And so I never kind of had that experience of not being in elite sport, I guess. Okay. So on one hand, it's really easy. But on the other hand, I think now looking back, I think that system is why we have like, why we had like seven women who could have like podiumed it in Rio. <laughs> and then none of them were fit or able to race it well in Rio. And I think it's because so like, especially with female athlete development, like with men, it's fine. You're going through puberty and everything. You're getting fitter, you're getting stronger. And it's just kind of like, it's okay if you just keep training more and more and more and your body's gonna, you know, strengthen and you're gonna get stronger and bigger and better and all that. But with women, so, you know, you're in junior elite, let's say you're like 17 years old and then you're 18, you're 19, you are kind of going through puberty, but you are, you know, supposed to be like becoming a woman, but you're not because you're training really well, you know, mm -hmm. and if you look at swimmers too, like swimmers, you know, going to the Olympics There's one girl from Canada, I think she's 14 years old and she's going to the Olympics. So what's interesting is you, you're, you're not really allowing your body to gain the fat that it will eventually gain. And you're not kind of like, so like you're starting, you're going through puberty, but you're not getting, going through it completely. And then what ends up happening is around the age of 20, 21, all the way up to maybe 23, that's when all the women start breaking down. Mm. So we looked at like, you know, Paul Finley on top of her game when she was 19, 20, because she has like 
awesome strength to weight ratio. We're really fit. We can compete with the best women in the world, like all that, but we never like allowed our bodies to catch up. And then, so then your body catches up right around that age of like 23, maybe 22, something like that. And then all the girls just like crack. Whereas if you look at the US women, so a lot of them are doing, yeah, collegiate varsity swimming, varsity running, whatever they're, they're training, but they're not quite training at the same level that we trained at. Like we trained like elites when we were, you know, 19, 18. Mm -hmm. And so then I really think it makes a healthier, stronger athlete when they come into it later, like as women, because they, they kind of allow their bodies to go through purity. They're, you know, then they can just, instead of like trying to gain fat while training 25 hours a week, instead you like start just, you already, you already had the fat and now you can kind of lose it and like get strong, get fit, get kind of ripped. I don't know. So I really think our system is not set up for female athlete development. I think it works fine for men, but um, we have some work to do on the women's side for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you'll probably, I would guess know more than I do, but I think I remember reading, I, I, I wish I could remember which book, because I, I think it was a podcast guest book as well, mm-hmm. but um, reading about like one of the challenges women have uh, developmentally is like going through puberty and then time, like assuming that not, it's not being delayed through like too much training mm-hmm. that like, there's usually like a time reversion where say you're running you know, a 19 minute 5k, well, then you may slow down for a year and be back yep. to 20 minutes or something. Yep. And then it, you feel like you're going backwards. So then the tendency is to want to work harder, which makes yep. things worse. So, but so if you just like stay the course, like you'll speed back up. And yep. I think that's something that's not addressed very well by, yes. by most coaches. And that's what I've been trying to kind of talk about recently in my talks and stuff is like, I say, so let's say you are competing at a high level when you are like 17 or 16 or something you're going to be fast then because you're not going to have much body fat at all Mm -hmm. like like you're going to be fast and so then when your body catches up when you start gaining weight especially on the run but like also on the bike any sport where like maybe other than swimming any sport where gaining weight will slow you down as long as it's not functional weight you're going to get slower and we don't talk about that like you'll have these girls who are training super hard and they're getting slower And it's because their body's catching up, you know? And then, yeah, exactly like what you said. If you just stay the course, you don't freak out, you make sure you're still eating enough. Because what happens then is the girls stop stop eating as much. Or the coaches, even the coaches will be like, oh, you've gained weight. It's like, they had to. Like, they're having this, like, rebound. Sometimes they're gaining too much weight because their body's like, we have to do this now, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, yeah, you are going to gain weight. You are going to get slower. But then if you, as long as you don't start you know, restricting energy, you, you'll settle right out and you'll be faster than you ever were. But the problem is that most girls don't know that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. They do restrict food. They go into the relative energy deficiency in sports cycle and then they start getting more weight. And it's just like this, you know, and then they get stress fractures and then, then it's like, you know, this recipe for disaster. So yeah. Yeah, well, it's like the, the, there's a whole psychological challenge there because, I mean, not only, and this is something I wanted to talk to you about too, is like you get, you've got the, what I'll call the, like the Instagram reality constantly yeah. chir- chirping at you, which that that has existed for a long time prior to Instagram, but it was magazines or TV or whatever mm-hmm. the medium is mm-hmm. chirping at you about you should look this way. But there's this, like, 
how do you convince a, a girl that's gaining weight that you need to eat more? I know. Because it's so counterintuitive to like, the, what I'll say is the, the, the cultural norm of like, eat less and you'll lose weight. It's like, yeah. no, you have a very specific situation that that is not applicable. That can work. Yeah. I know. It's so hard. It's so hard because so, yeah. When you have a girl who's in a state of res or a guy too, right? But like, let's say you're in a state of low energy availability, your metabolism gets downregulated. So now every time you eat, even if it's like, you know, even if it's like already less than what you're supposed to be taking in, if you eat slightly more than that, your body is like going to hold off to all those calories as much as it possibly can. And then that looks like weight gain, or I mean, it is weight gain, right? And the only way to break that cycle is to eat more, <laughs> And then like, just let the metabolism ramp up on its own because you're eating enough. And then you can have that healthy balance where if you, you know, if you exercise or you eat less, then you'll start losing weight like a normal person. Right. And that's the hardest thing because yeah, like if you get to that point where no matter what you do, you gain weight, like it's an awful, awful place to be in as an athlete or anyone, but like you know, especially as an athlete, if your career, your life is your sport and it seems like no matter what you do, you gain weight, like it wreaks havoc on your mental state for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, like it's, I, I always feel like it, I've had my own challenges. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to play it off as like, oh, I'm perfect. And I know all the things to do for myself. You know, yeah. I have a coach and we talk it, but just mm-hmm. it's, it's like, not only do you have to convince them, okay, you need to eat more, but it's like, you've got to get them to buy into it. So like, they've got to trust you as your coach, as, as the coach or whatever. It's like, like, just, just trust that this is going to work. And there's all the anxiety building about, mm-hmm. I don't have the energy to work out and I'm gaining weight and just every, all the psychological stressors going on. And, yep. and it, uh, one side note, and it's not really a side note, but for, for the listener, um, REDS or relative energy deficiency syndrome is kind of Alex's, thing her area of expertise so uh, just to, to clarify that she, this is not like a paper <laughs> have, she read but yeah true um which which uh when i was listening to the other interview you'd done on um the consummate athlete podcast uh you had mentioned uh, your sister was you know you're both racing as pros and she really ended up overtrained i thought i, I had read that you were overtrained as well so like at some point was it just her? Was it both of you? I mean, how did you get into saying, okay, like this is my area of specialty? Mm-hmm. So my sister was the one who got it really bad. Okay. I, I wouldn't say I ever, like she had full blown what we call overtraining syndrome, but it looks like chronic fatigue syndrome, or maybe it is the same thing. Maybe, you know what, it's very similar to what we're calling long COVID. So the chronic fatigue that happens after a virus, it's basically like what it seems like. It's just your body can't handle stress anymore right and so like for someone with chronic fatigue or this long covid they can't exercise at all because any additional energy expenditure just makes their body shut down you know so that's what my sister got and i think it was a combination of many different things so i she definitely was in reds like she had relative energy deficiency in sport we she was also doing a lot of altitude training camps she got progressively worse over time Um, And like, maybe it was even slightly triggered by a virus or something, but either way, like it all added up so that she got to the point where for years she couldn't exercise at all. Like couldn't go for a light bike ride, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
that's terrible. Um, normally, you know, that's very rare. So I think what I don't like is when people overuse the term overturning syndrome because that, you know, syndrome, when you get to that point of complete, like can't even go for a light bike ride, that is rare, but it happens. And so I don't want to like overuse that term, but like for myself, and I think any athlete, I've gone to the point of overreaching. So functional overreaching or non-functional overreaching. I think almost all of us have been there at some point. So it's basically just when you get so tired <laughs> from training that you can't perform. So even if like, you know, gun was held to your head, if, if you had to do a 5k time trial run or something, you would do really bad. But with a, a week or two weeks, maybe three weeks of recovery, you bounce back. That's just overreaching. And that's what I've definitely had many times in my life <laughs> so, well that uh, maybe i'll apologize because i know like i often refer to as overreaching as overtraining it, hmm. it, it, it it's like the common vernacular for it. like yeah. people are asking about you know what's going on or what do i do or even like yeah. you know you on the other podcast you just you described you know the various stages and their, mm-hmm. their delineations and mm-hmm. you know burnout being this psychological component like I just did a video on like how you recover from burnout and mm-hmm. talking about, you know, I refer to it as overtraining. It's like, it's, and it's part of it is not being clear enough on the each individual stages on my part. So that, that's certainly my issue. But then um, part of it's just trying to, in like for most people, say average Joe, if they've reached this stage of overreaching, it's like, okay, you take some time off. Like that's, that's yeah. All I need, all I need yeah. to say, yeah. but it's like trying to explain that, you know, there's all these these factors that go into it, and, and I think one thing you talked about on the other all the podcast that um, it can be a trigger, and I think in the studies you're talking about like um, how just adding miles didn't really get like participants into overreaching or overtraining mm-hmm. like, you know, mm-hmm. into the intensity, but the thing I try to educate people on is that like life is a stressor too it's not just like your exercises don't live in a bubble where it's just like well i did the same mileage it's fine it's like yeah but are you getting divorced are you like are you like we just finished a kitchen renovation for the last eight months that was stressful (laughs) you know like are there other things going on that are stressing you and and that is something i think is not talked about enough Mm -hmm. when we just want to be like this is how to you know structure a training routine it's like yeah but what else is going on? Do you have like a huge deadline at work you got to get done? Like then maybe you're not going to complete all of your training hours this week. Exactly. And I think that's what's different from like an elite athlete who can, I mean, sure, they're still going to have personal life issues and stress and stuff, but they can dial it in so well. Like when you're just training, you know, if you're not working, you don't have school, like you don't have all that you're really focusing on is training. It's so easy to just get the training Um, load right because it's like all we really care about is the training and so you can train so hard because that's all you that's the only stressor I guess that's the only thing that's putting stress on your body but then like for myself when I went back to school and I started trying to like do my master's and train or like even just day-to-day life now like I cannot handle at all the training that I like even like intensity wise like even one session right I can't handle it and it's just because there's so much else going on in my life. And yeah, I think that the additional stressors or, you know, all the other things that are going on in your, in your life, they're, yeah, more taxing on your body than 
training, <laughs> you know, and there would allow you to whether, you know, they say whether or not you're going to have a good session that day for sure. Like even yesterday, I did a whole day of data collection. So doing data collection for three different studies and I went home and I was supposed to do, I'm signed up for this virtual 10K and I went out and I ran 5K and then I just like quit. And it was such a sudden quit. Like it was like I hadn't consciously decided I was going to quit. And then all of a sudden I just stopped and stopped my watch. And then I walked home and then I laid on the ground for like three hours because it was like so dead. And it was interesting because it was like, what did, why, you know? But I think it was just because my whole day of work, like my body was like, no, you, you know, this isn't happening today. <laughs> you have to redo this. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, well, it's like it, in the midst of all that, I think one of the things you even talked about in the, in the other podcast is like, making sure you're like you're fueling properly and not mm-hmm. like they were talking about intermittent fasting and that's such the thing right now mm-hmm. and it's like i i'm certainly guilty of this though i often get my workouts done in the morning so i don't run into this um you know i eat breakfast and then like an hour later go out for whatever the workout is um is it like with the data collection and i don't know you can obviously tell me somebody has their work day and they're busy all day and maybe they forget lunch and it's like they've been going all day and then now they're getting home or getting off you know maybe they get off early three or four o'clock they can go do their workout at five well you haven't eaten anything since hopefully you had something at breakfast and yeah and you're like expecting to perform yeah when you're in such a bad space Mm -hmm. that's I mean that's exactly what yeah I think yesterday what happened was I yeah I had brought my food but like you know, I ate my lunch around 12, wasn't even like that big. And then I had a snack when I got home, but like, then I waited to run. And so just overall, a lot less calories than I would have had if I had just stayed at home all day. Then I, yeah, went outside to run at like, I don't know, five, five thirty or something. And it was still like 30 degrees here and like 70% humidity or something. Sorry, that's Celsius. Yeah. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. No, it's <laughs> but- fine. I'll, I'll, I'll look at <laughs> it yeah, yeah. basically it was really hot i hadn't eaten enough i had you know all the mental stress of just back-to-back testing and yeah it's so i mean for me anyways i know that i'm very sensitive to calories like i think when people i almost like get used to not having enough calories and so they can kind of handle it a bit better i mean you're still not handling it well like no matter what you will perform better if you're fed and i think that's something people need to realize it's like you will 1000% perform better. You'll have a way better session if you are fed, <laughs> especially with carbs. Like, you know, you need those full glycogen stores. You will do, you'll be able to push so much harder. But like for me too, I think I'm just maybe because I know that about myself, I'm extra sensitive when I'm not fully repleted. And um, yeah, no, it's super, it was like an interesting intersection of like psychology and physiology where like I quit before even having thought about quitting like you know and my body obviously like it's really good that I didn't push through and do the full 10k Mm because I was so dead after it for so long and so like mentally foggy that like imagine if I had done the full 10k I probably would have (laughs) just I wouldn't be talking to you today (laughs) so yeah it's interesting so what one of the things I think about is like uh, you know we're we're basically on the same page as far as I can tell it's like eat carbs they're gonna fuel you they're good thing and so one of the things like you know i I do videos about running because that's my background Mm -hmm. and um you know i am not a dietitian but i do talk about food sometimes and i talk to dietitians so i try to get you know good information from them Mm -hmm. um but you know like 
low carb and keto and those things are really popular right now and there's always a new fad diet whatever that is mm-hmm. at the time and somebody somewhere sometime will be like i'm a super vegan and i you know do really well at ironmans yeah it's like that's awesome man like you you go or or woman or whoever it is like that's great mm-hmm. but it seems like like when we look at literature and they do the study like studies and try to figure out okay what's performance on a low carb versus you know carb in, in mm-hmm. cycling or running or whatever the study is and then it shows okay yes like endurance isn't often hampered but then like high-end power is hampered because you have no glycogen it's like they see we'll we'll call it like ben i I don't ben's nobody but as for example we'll call ben the super vegan they like see ben they're like well he can do it so i obviously can it's like ben's probably the exception to the rule like how how do you get past that psychology? Do you, do you deal with that psychology with your athletes that are like, they're like, yeah, the, the, that confirmation bias. So it's like, I want to do this. And I find the one example that's like, they could do it. And you're like, likely not. Yeah. It's so interesting. Cause like, so I think part of it is people don't realize how much better that person could be doing if they were eating enough protein and carbs. So like, it's like, sure, they can do it. How fast do you think they would be if they were properly fueled and properly recovered so we know like you know and i yeah so like you know if you're getting enough good quality protein following workouts you're going to be able to have way more muscle protein synthesis you're going to be able to adapt to that training so much faster it's less stress in the body and then exactly the same thing for carbs so it's like it comes down to can you adapt to the sessions that you're doing and then also how hard can you push in those sessions so that you can kind of like level up right Mm. so there's a whole body of work done by Louise Burke out in Australia. And she's like the, she's the, I don't know, God of, <laughs> of sports nutrition. She has these crazy studies where it's mostly with elite race walkers and she gets them from all over the world. They come in, they do a training camp at her lab and they basically every morsel of food that they eat is provided by her. So she knows exactly what they're taking in and she'll put them into groups of like, One's high carb, one's like, I don't know, normal, one's super low carb, maybe keto, whatever. And um, she's done multiple versions of this study. And they also do races at the start and at the end. And the races are with prize money and everything. So like the athletes have incentive to go as hard as they can. Mm -hmm. And what she finds is that, so we know that the high carb group will outperform any of the other groups. We also know now that throughout a training camp, if you're keto, you are actually not adapting to the training the way that the normal carb or high carb groups will be. So it's basically showing like, not only are you hampering your performance in a given session, like in a given race, you also are not adapting to training. So you're not able to level up, let's say the way that the other group is. So it really, it's like interesting when people are like, Oh yeah, no, I perform really well on let's say low carb or, or vegan or whatever. And it's like, but you don't know how you would be performing if you put that back in. And I mean, even for myself, I found, so I went through a phase when I was uh, 21, where I was like really paleo, <laughs> which is paleo. It's funny because it's once again, it's like any diet, it's not meant for the elite athletes because mm-hmm. the elite athletes, like this is meant for people who are sedentary, like any sort of stress where you're not giving yourself enough food 
is perfectly fine for somebody who's sedentary because they don't have the additional stress of exercise. Throw in the exercise, and if you actually want to perform in those sessions, like you need a lot of carbs. You need, I mean, with with paleo, I had enough protein, but like, I don't want to be a fat burning machine. I want to be able to like run 5K or 10K really fast. And um, I found when I started adding more carbs back into my diet, even through just like oatmeal, rice cakes, rice, whatever, um, all of a sudden I stopped getting sick so much. I was able to push in workouts, you know, workouts seemed easier. And it's just like, yeah, so maybe like for some athletes who really can't, who really believe like one way is the best way for them. It's like, okay, do that, do it for three months. And now I like, you know, promise me that you'll add some back in and see how the difference, right? Yeah. And then and then just let them kind of figure that out for themselves. I, it's it's so perplexing. Like, you know, one of the things I think we get ourselves into trouble with is that like our our, our brains are trying to find patterns and things, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's what the human brain does. Like we find patterns, we identify them, but then we, we identify false patterns too. Yeah. And like, that's where like confirmation bias comes in where you're like, I, I think this is going to have what happens. And then you see it and you're like, yep, that's what happened. Even, yeah. even though you may be ignoring like, you know, evidence to the contrary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, I don't know. I don't have a question. It's just, it's just interesting sometimes how people get themselves down a rabbit hole of like, this is definitely going to work. Let's say like in this case, like this certain diet, like yeah. I believe in this diet, like I, I hold, I wholesale bought it and I know it's going to make me the best I, I ever could be. And then they're performing well. And it may be just because of, in part because of the belief that they're going to be doing well. So then mm-hmm. there's a like, like psychological motivation, but it may be ignoring like, oh, I also kind of, I'm not recovering as fast, but like I've, mm-hmm. I've got the motivation to keep pushing. You also like if you start losing weight and most diets work like any diet vegan paleo anything they work initially because you start losing weight right Mm -hmm. it's just because you're taking less calories and people will think like oh no it's because i'm taking in less carbs and it's like no it's because you're taking in less calories and you know maybe it's because it's less it's harder to take it you know let's say you cut out all processed foods or all um grains now that's like a large amount of food that you just took out um and so yeah you like if you were good at counting calories you would realize you're taking in less and so then you start losing weight and then for a period of time you will perform better and then it's just when you get to that point in time following the like low energy availability reds pathway that as soon as your body's like you know what this is too much stress now once again down regulate the metabolism now even if i'm taking less calories i'm gaining weight and then and then you start having bone problems and then you have stress fractures and then you know, that whole cascade. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's hard. Like people will be like, this is definitely working for me and I'm faster. And it's like, sure, for a bit, like you will be for a bit. Um, but you know, my go-to is kind of diets for athletes. Like if you're an athlete, you shouldn't be on a diet. You can be on like a specific, you know, let's say like, like for me, I find I'm pretty sensitive to gluten. I don't eat gluten but I don't count myself as being on a diet, you know, like I'm substituting my carbs and eating a good amount of carbs, no matter what. So, you know, like there's always going to be exceptions, but it's just like diets, <laughs> diets are not meant for athletes. They're meant for people who aren't exercising. And then, yeah, yeah, that's my go-to. Yeah. I, I think along those lines, you'd said on the other podcast is like a diet itself is like a workout. Like it's a yeah. stressor. Mm-hmm. I really, I really like that just because it, I think it helps frame it mm-hmm. a little bit easier where it's like 
so instead of thinking, okay, I'm on a diet and I'm also working out, it's like, well, now, now you're basically doing two a days. Exactly. Yeah. So if you've exactly. gone from not working out to doing two a days, like it's probably going to be a bad time. <laughs> too much. It's too much. Yeah, exactly. Like if you, if you really want to try it, you know, like a super restrictive vegan diet or something, do it on your off season because then you'll get to feel what it's like. And then when you're training again, you can't, don't do it. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's definitely like doubling up because it's basically what you're doing is you're putting that energy stress through your body. So exercise is an energy stress. You're stressing the body. It's like, you know, no matter what, if you're training hard, you're going to have a period of a calorie deficit and like that's good for short periods of time mm -hmm. and that's the way a diet works too it's fine for short periods of time it's just you then have to replenish it everything you know allow the muscle protein to come back you know allow all your systems to adapt to the training you know it's how any sort of stress and adaptation cycle works so yeah so now i'm going to ask you a, a personal question that i'm thinking about so mm -hmm. um so anybody that's been listening back on episode 100 uh, i had my coach on and we were talking about this and i'm, I'm trying to lose weight in in this sense that i'm trying to get leaner because i've never been real lean i would refer like i've been like the skinny fat athlete pretty much yeah. my whole life um which i think is a signal that i've just been eating too many carbs <laughs> but like over you know over covid like I, I just i gained too much weight i got i'm 510 so uh, i got up to like 174 pounds and I know like racing weight, I probably need to be closer to 160. So I'm not, I'm not like real small by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, I'm like in college, I was racing 155 and post-college like 158. My fastest 5k was, at, I was at 163. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm not trying to like get down to 140 or anything. That would be nuts. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to get 160 ish. And what I've been doing, I'm not consciously dieting. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to be like, I basically have a system of like, if I'm hungry, I eat, but like trying not to like eat too many extra desserts or like things like that. Mm -hmm. And then I take my weight every day. And then if I have too many days in a row where I lose weight, so like say, say on Monday, I'm 167. Mm -hmm. And then by Friday, I'm 163. I'm like, that's too much. Like I'll mm -hmm. purposefully eat more to bring my weight back up. So Sorry. I don't like, hamper my performance and end up in that overreaching period mm -hmm. am, am i on the right track to do what i want to do or yeah it sounds doing, I, I just want to make sure i'm not like doing some weird dysregulated eating or anything like i want to make sure i'm doing it right doing and, right yeah yeah so the goal to so the idea is you want to be losing it gradually and in like the smallest possible increments possible so it's kind of right. like if you can be in a 300 to 400 calorie deficit you'll be okay <laughs> like per day right my and goal so, is actually to try to shoot for like 200 because i find yep. when i tried like three to four i get hangry like i just get yep. mean because yep. and then i know for sure that i'm like i need to eat need something because like i'm being yep. pissy about everything mm -hmm. it, just the littlest stuff and it's like that's the signal to me like eat something eat you're, something you're, yeah you're too too un, too under so I have a couple like rules of thumb there. So yeah, you want to keep it within that like small energy deficit because too big, then you're just going to put yourself into reds, mm -hmm. you know, and then you lower your metabolism and then it's not going to work for you. So another, so that's one thing. Another thing is just make sure you're eating enough after your workouts, mm -hmm. because that's the only time you're going to adapt from the workouts. So you don't want to impede the ability to adapt from your training. Otherwise right. the tra training becomes essentially worthless, right? You know, if you can't get faster from it, why are you doing it? <laughs> so like, you know, so make sure you're 
fueling and like quite a lot after the training. So it's like, if you're going to eat big, eat it after the training. Um, and then, and then what I would do too is, so like, let's say you want to do anything, any sort of hard session, I would make sure I'm eating carbs before and after, but then say I have easy stuff, you could swing towards eating more protein, lower carbs. Um, Cause the protein, if let's say you're in a calorie deficit, but you have enough protein, the protein is going to allow you to maintain your muscle mass, you know, not lose any of that muscle mass, not lose any of those essential, you know, proteins essentially. And then, um, but still lose a little bit of weight. You want to really target the like fat loss, not right. muscle loss, right? right? Right. Yeah. So that's just from a calorie deficit, but maintaining your protein or even upping your protein intake um, and then cycling the carbs around the training. Okay. That's what I would say. So we've basically just been in base building the last year and I, I just just did a 4th of July run. So you've got Canada Day on the 1st and we've got the 4th. And so it was a four mile run. So I've, I've got a baseline now from this race, but like we're only going to really start, you know, the build and then race period later on. Like I'm looking over the next year, like, okay, so I'm, I'm only running like six minute pace right now, which is not bad for just doing long, slow miles. Um, and then I'm like, okay, I'd like to get down to like 5.30 pace for my 10K. So I just, like I said, I've got you captive. So <laughs> I figured I'd poke your brain a little bit, you know, selfishly yeah. trying to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm on track because, you know, my tendency growing up is basically just been uh, like, I, I didn't eat enough my senior year of high school. Part of it is just like, I've talked about this on, on, on the running show that I do on YouTube is it like, I, I didn't eat breakfast before I'd go to school mm-hmm. and we'd have lunch and then work out. It's like, it's the same thing where like, didn't eat all day, ate it, ate it noon or whatever time they had lunch scheduled. You work out at three o'clock. It's like, you barely consumed anything. Yep. I was just so broken down. So then into college, my tendency was basically like, just eat, like yeah. just eat. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it's still like, how did you get to be really conscious? I mean, I messed up like my, my like junior year conference. Cause I, we were staying out of town and I didn't have access to all the food and I was just wiped for my races. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was a two day event. I run the steeple on one day and the 5k the next day. And just, <laughs> I had, I had no juice for either. Yeah. And so I think that's where I get into just, I'll be, I'll have a little extra body fat as long as I've got enough fuel you'll perform so much better right yeah exactly it's like you don't have to worry like we worry so much about race weight but it's like you'll perform better if you're fueled and you're fueled for your sessions even if you're carrying a couple extra pounds of fat you know you'll still perform better than if you're skinny and under fueled right right and it's just finding that like i think people have to feel that for themselves like it's hard to believe it you know you're like no no like seniors faster you, you have to like figure that out for yourself, Fe- figure out like what it feels like when you are underfueled yeah. <laughs> and then realize like, oh yeah, like when you can push, when you can like really go hard and you mm-hmm. can dig super deep because you're fueled, like, you know, that's a great feeling. And then when you're underfueled, you find like, you know, it's like you just can't get that extra little bit of push. Like you can't make yourself go hard enough in a race situation. And that's a sign of yeah not enough fuel um so yeah it's a big thing yeah i think you you talked about this in the other interview with with um talking about communicating with your athletes and i i try to really push this is 
people making notes about how they feel on particular workouts mm-hmm. and they're and they're i talk i i'm like the rate of perceived exertion religion like that's mm-hmm. like that, that that's the if you have no other point of reference like what was your rpe for the day yeah and it's like if you're paying attention to that all the time at least i feel like i would have noticed it especially on the bike i think because there's actual gears yeah so it's almost easier to like quantitative qualitative matchup mm-hmm. but i would just be like I just didn't have the next gear that day or whatever. Like I, or I could be like, man, I really just felt like, you know, say we were going, it's supposed to be like Z4 training or something. Mm-hmm. And I was just like pushing the top end or going a couple of watts over whatever my top end would be. And just be like, I felt great mm-hmm. and paying attention to what you're eating versus, you know, that, that qualitative approach. Like, how did I yeah. feel? If you do it enough, it seems like you'll start to go, Oh yeah. Like, over the weekend, I, I just ate pizza and cake, and then I felt like crap come training on Monday because I didn't actually get any good nutrients in over the weekend. Maybe you can get through it because you took in carbs and fats and some proteins, mm-hmm. but just like the quality of it wasn't good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's it's really fun. checking in. I mean, I'm 100% on the same page as you. It's like, to me, watts and you know all my other metrics, they don't tell me as much as if it was just like, okay, but how did you feel at that wattage or how did you feel at that heart rate or whatever? Because yeah, like let's say I see someone and I, I prescribe them a workout. I said like, I want you to do, you know, let's say it's on the bike and I wanted you to do three by 10 minutes threshold or like around that FTP kind of value. And then, so they're hitting their watts and like maybe their heart rate looks fine, but it's like, but what? if it was way harder to do that than it usually is, like that's telling me something, you know, Mm -hmm. that is either you're overreaching or you're, or you haven't fed properly, or you're just in a really stressful period of your life, or we didn't, you know, recover you enough from your previous sessions, whatever it is. But like, I wouldn't be able to tell that from the file. The only way I can tell that is if you gave me an RPE or you gave me a comment. Um, So I, I try to hammer that home to my athletes, but you know, it's hard with online coaching because it's, it's in their hands kind of like I can mm-hmm. say it as many times as I want, but unless they feel like telling me, I just, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't, well, it's just, I, I don't know if it's one of those things where um, this is a, a phrase from my, one of my business mentors. He talks about, you don't have to watch somebody else fall off a cliff to know you don't want to fall off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And I, I think sometimes people do need to fall off a cliff yep. <laughs> before they really understand it. And it's, that's one of those things that, like I think you talked about it with I don't know if it was today or the other mm-hmm. conversation because it's all jumbled in my head now but just like some of those things are like precursors or signals before you reach that like overreaching over training period like you feel a certain way or this isn't happening because of this and it's like it, if you wrote those down in the journal or in the log or in training peaks or whatever you're using mm-hmm. then like you in particular with your athletes can go okay, maybe next week we're going to like, we're going to pull back on the volume or the intensity or something and deal with this before it becomes, before it happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I know. And some athletes are really good at that. And other athletes are really bad. And, you know, some athletes, I don't, all of a sudden they'll stop training and then I'll be like, all right, what's happening? (laughs) This is because they went off the cliff. It's like, we could have prevented it, but that's okay. I guess we'll just like, let you, you know, wait it out again the 10th time <laughs> yeah. yeah well it's like I, I go back to um um dr matt jordan who is at the canadian sports science institute mm-hmm. and he you know he's 
he has a lab kind of like what you're in now and he mm -hmm. you know takes all these biometrics and tries to figure out all these different things and like what we talked about with him is it no matter what data he can come up with and reliable predictors for injury or recurrence of injury um it's like if we come back to rpe it ends up correlating and being one of the most reliable measures yeah no matter what data we can take yeah exactly. it's like when you're talking about probably your athletes or athletes of i'll say i'll call i can always call it say average joe but that that covers a really broad range of people it's like not everybody has access to all that stuff and can be taking lab measures all the time and it's like mm -hmm. if you just if you just get in touch with how you feel yeah <laughs> we'll exactly. get a little like have a little kumbaya moment yeah and we'll sit and around so it's so interesting because the physiology does line up with the mental state. It's just that like people don't know what to look for. So when you're fully, when you're fully overreached, um, so like functional overreaching or non-functional overreaching at any give, given effort. So let's say like, well, not even effort, like power output. So let's say like, you know, you're used to going 200 Watts on the bike at a heart rate of 150. Mm -hmm. So next time, when you're overreached, if you're going 200 watts, now you're going to be at a heart rate of 140. So your heart rate is actually suppressed. And what that feels like is it feels like it doesn't feel easier. It feels like you can't push. So then now, like, let's say we go up to 300 watts. Now your heart rate's still suppressed by like 10 or more beats. It feels like you just can't go hard. And then it just gets to a point where you stop. Essentially, you can't do that wattage because your, your heart rate isn't keeping up. And so that's just like one physiological sign that matches with the effort level. It's like you're in the pool or you're running and you just sort of feel like you feel really heavy. You feel like you can't sprint even if you wanted to. And your physiology matches up with that. You're going to have less lactate production. You're going to have a suppressed heart rate. And yet athletes who don't have that awareness think, oh, it's all in my head. You know, it's like, oh, I'd feel heavy. I feel bad, but it's just in my head. I just have to keep pushing through it. And it's so interesting because it's like, it's like, no, the physiology usually lines up with the psychology you know and you just have to trust yourself like if you feel bad it's because you're not doing good you know you are doing bad and you're doing bad for a, a physiological reason so like i don't know I, i'm really not um one of those people that'll ever say like oh it's all in your head i think nine times out of ten it's not in your head it's in your body your head knows <laughs> you know you don't trust it but your head knows that you're not doing well um, and it's just like that one time out of 10 where you have someone who just kind of gives up because, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, like, you know, someone passes you and you're like, oh, I, they shouldn't be passing me. And then you quit. But I don't think that happens as often as we think, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, my go-to is like, if you're feeling bad, it's not in your head. It's real. Like, yeah. you know, think about why, why are you feeling bad? Um, maybe you're overreached, maybe you're underfueled, you know, all of those reasons. So, yeah, yeah. it's just, so I was getting ready to talk to you, I just thinking about overtraining or overreaching, you made me think about uh, Vanessa Raw from back on episode 61. Mm. You're probably familiar with her. You may race, yeah. race together. Yeah. And, and you know, so former British ITU triathlete. Mm -hmm. And she, we talked about just, she spent so much of her career overtrained and injured and just being pushed too hard. And it's like, just, she wasn't listened to. Mm -hmm. like she knew like something was wrong, but then yeah. there's just like this culture of just go harder and like you'll yeah. improve. Mm -hmm. It's like, how many times do we have to, uh, you're using the metaphor again, push an athlete off a cliff yeah. before we go, maybe we shouldn't do this. 
I know, I know. The culture, especially when she was racing, it was so bad. I mean, it was when I was younger too. It was so bad. It was very much uh, like it's all in your head mentality. So mm-hmm. like so many athletes that I know, including my sister, it's like they would go out for a run. Then, you know, they would not be able to do it. They'd like start walking back. It'd be like impossible to do the workout. And yet the coach or the doctor even would be like, well, it's all in your head. Like you just don't want it bad enough. And it's like, no, that's not a thing. Like that's not a thing. If these yeah. athletes are professional athletes, they want it more than anyone else mm-hmm. in the world. Like they want it so bad. It's everything to them. It's their whole life, like lives. Like it's like, like that's the absolute opposite. If anything, they want it too much. Yeah. You know. So like, let's just listen to them. If they can't do it, it's not in their head. If yeah, sure, a blood test might show up fine, right? Because with overreaching, if it's not with energy deficiency if it's actually just pure overreaching it's more like neural than anything or it could be cardiac but either way it's like it's not going to show up in a blood test that doesn't mean there's nothing wrong like if you can't get your heart rate up there's something wrong um and yeah we just have to listen to the athletes like blows my mind i like yeah my boyfriend at the time he basically got like kicked out of the national center because they decided that he didn't care because he had over he was overreached like super badly overreached it's just like so frustrating but yeah <laughs> it's just it, it, so uh, i as we're winding down I, I i didn't get to ask you this so i wanted to ask you this before i ask my final question mm-hmm. and it's how prevalent do you think overtraining is among the professionals or the professional mm-hmm. peloton however you want to classify that group mm-hmm. you know all the mm-hmm. way from continental through you know world cup like the whole system mm-hmm. So I think that every athlete ever (laughs) would have experienced at least functional overreaching before in their life, because that's kind of just your training camp fatigue where, you know, you get to the end of a really hard training block and all of a sudden your times are just bad, you know, like you just can't go the times that you could at the start. So that's just kind of your normal training camp fatigue, but it is, it is functional overreaching. And we have shown that um, it's not as good for, adaptation as if you had just been acutely fatigued so like you just had normal training fatigue but you could still perform you would perform you'd adapt to that training and perform better overall than if you got to that point of functional overreaching but I think every athlete has experienced that at some point or another and it takes like a week maybe two and you should bounce back and you'll be good now non-functional overreaching I think most athletes probably would have felt it as well it's just like when you get into a hole and it takes like a month or more to get out of that's non-functional reaching i feel like most athletes would have felt that as well um and then when we're getting into like overtraining syndrome that's still a very small percentage because usually what that is that would be like vanessa raw and stuff where you end up quitting the sport because you can't do it um so that's still a pretty small percentage And then in terms of like low energy availability, that's definitely tied in with the overtraining syndrome, like Vanessa Raw and my sister. Um, And those ones, so like, I feel like, I mean, the nice thing about reds and low energy availability, it's, it has pretty obvious markers. And so the, the most obvious one is stress fractures. If you're having stress fractures, there's a very good chance that you're in a low energy state um and so i would say like i mean basically any athlete that's had a stress fracture likely was there and they're not performing optimally even if they think that they're doing fine because they're not fueling properly and i don't know i want to say like we don't have solid numbers on it but like 
I bet you close to 50% of elite endurance athletes have had a stress fracture and so likely had reds. Yeah, so it's high, it's high numbers, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, and like with the training, with endurance sport, just you're training so much, like you have such a high volume that even if you don't have some sort of, you know, disordered eating or anything, it's just so easy. And like you said too, when you go to school and stuff, it's just so easy to unintentionally not fuel properly or you just don't know, like, yeah, you don't realize how to pack your food for the day. Like, or I'll start coaching some athletes who kind of went from being, you know, not athletes to becoming triathletes. And I'm like, you need to eat a thousand more calories a day than you're eating. And they're just so used to eating the same thing every day. Um, Yeah. So it's easy to like unintentionally get yourself into these bad positions. It's just, I don't know. It's something I think about um, just because it seems like it, it, maybe it's just me going, you know, if we could have prevented this, like, like in Vanessa's case, you know, if we could have mm-hmm. prevented this, then like, what kind of, what kind of career could she have had? And, you know, even if she didn't become world champion and win Olympic gold, like just the qualitative experience of having a more productive, enjoyable career, like mm-hmm. instead of running her into the ground and just grinding her into a pulp, like, yeah, I just think about the, the, the qualitative experience of the person and, and like, is it really, especially our pros? I mean, all the mm-hmm. amateurs, cause there's way more amateurs than pros, but like the, the pros should be the example mm-hmm. of like how to do it right. And it's like, if we treat the best of the best, not the best we can, are we really like setting a good example of what the sport should represent so yeah I, I guess I think about that sometimes yeah and I think like we just have this tradition of really um bad coaching <laughs> like and it's just it's so built in it's like we have these I don't know what I call them, like dictator coaches so it's like mm. a coach that controls your whole life they control your your everything that you do in the day as well as like your mental state like they control everything and it's so unnatural and like we know that happy athletes are performing better athletes Mm -hmm. who have like a say in what their day looks like what their life looks like who they get to hang out with like these those athletes and specifically like triathletes the ones who have control over the training have control over their life are, are the ones that are performing on the top and the ones who are in the middle you know are not performing up to their potential are the ones with these like dictator coaches or dictator federations that don't let them have a say in their life and it's so backwards I don't know why we have that set up um I mean specific like in Canada we have just it's been like this forever and you know it's like the athletes are treated like they're 10 years old like they have no say in anything which is absolutely insane when you're an adult you know Mm -hmm. you know your body better than any coach could ever know your body like you know when something's good you know when something's bad you know, you know, what makes you happy, you know, what makes you not happy. And the fact that athletes don't get to make those calls is, you know, that's what's ruining all the athletes, right? So I don't know, I would like to say on that, I think that um, we just need a culture shift. Like, I think there's other sports who have gone through the same sort of thing where they used to think like, oh, we need to control our athletes, you know, down to every minute of their day. And they've slowly realized that's not what makes a good athlete. And for whatever reason, at least in Canada, um, we haven't caught up, but hopefully we catch up soon. Um, 
you know, like, I don't know what, say, like, the Brownies, I don't know what their coaching is like, but what I, it seems like is that they have control over what they do. Mm-hmm. They have a say in it. And I don't know if that's the case, but it does seem like these top athletes get to choose where they, where they get, where they're training, who they're training with, like, they have more say. Um, so, yeah, hopefully the sport progresses to that. Yeah. Yeah. Alex is running out of time. Um, I'll ask you the question I'm asking everybody this year. And that question is how do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Ooh, um, good question. I, I guess, I mean, I was just thinking about like my more recent goals. My recent goals are like less intense, right? Cause I'm not an elite anymore. Um, but for me, it's just because it's not, it's not over. Like things aren't, it's not like when you fail, then it's done and you're, you, you know, then you should just throw in the towel. It's like, okay, it's part of the process. Um, so like even I had a goal to run a fast half marathon, but I'm always getting Achilles injuries. So it's never happening. But to me, it's just kind of like, it's not a failure. It's just the step in the right direction. And eventually, hopefully one day I'll get there. Um, so I guess I think, for me, it's just like, don't put that, like have a goal, but don't be like, if I don't get it, then it's over. You know, like, why is it over? That's just like part of it. And one day you'll get it as long as you don't put that like end post there. So yeah, I would say that's my answer. Um, Alex, where can people find you, see your research, get in touch, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff? Well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is superalex underscore C. And I'm also working with this group called One Athlete. And it's at, I think, just www.oneathlete.com. Maybe .ca, but maybe .com. We'll check. And, It'll be in the description. Yeah. <laughs> so that is, so what we're trying to do with One Athlete is we're trying to make a monitoring tool for energy deficiency and for overtraining um, and for overreaching. And so the idea is you do this questionnaire once a month, let's say, or once a week, but once a month is fine. And it just like, it'll track your scores over time and you'll get to know, like, if you have a score of whatever, then you're at risk, you're, you're in a bad place. And so the idea is you just do this monthly questionnaire and you'll know where you're at. So what we're trying to do is validate that right now. We need a thousand athletes to fill it out and we're at like 140. So <laughs> we can get the word out, go to one athlete, fill out the questionnaire. It's called alpha. Um, that would be really helpful. Um, yeah. So you can find me there. And then also, so my lab is the human performance lab at the university of Guelph and we have our own website and we post our research there. So if you're interested in any of the blood flow restriction or anything, all that has been posted up there and yeah. That's, that's it, I think. Sounds good. Thanks for hanging out with me today, Alex. Thank you very much for having me.